Hello and welcome to Sam for Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm excited to welcome Jonathan Kramer. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. I'm uh, really excited to chat today. Great. Can you just go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. So my name's Jonathan. I have been doing the programming thing now for going on 11 years, which is really always weird to say out loud. I started in computer engineering technology with a degree from Middle Tennessee State and immediately went into doing something that maybe people have heard of called cold fusion. (laughs) It's an old school HTML sort of kind of funny language thing where you used to query databases in line and write them out. And uh, it's just fun. There's a small cold fusion community out there still. And then I went into doing some .NET development with ASP.NET MVC. And that was kind of a cool chance to sort of learn object-oriented programming and kind of get into a community that sort of started getting into doing meetups and meeting other engineers and realizing like there's actually other people out there that do this too. And that's when sort of Twitter was booming and I started following folks in the .NET space like Scott Hanselman and all them from Microsoft. And the cool thing about .NET MVC was it sort of lended itself towards the, the V a lot and sort of put an emphasis on doing more client-side development, which I kind of decided I liked. All of a sudden, I was doing jQuery and Knockout, and some of these early frameworks were releasing Backbone. And I think the first client-side tool we were using on that app was a Backbone app. And at the time, like I didn't even know how to join multiple files together with JavaScript because like things like Uglyfy weren't even really out yet or Grunt. So I had just like thousands of lines of backbone code. <laughs> and then eventually, you know, I moved on to a company called Appentu where we did all JavaScript and just realized that JavaScript is just all I want to do all day, every day. And we did backbone with require and a few knockout projects, all kinds of different things. It was a consulting firm, which was really fun. And then, yeah, I moved on towards a company called Lonely Planet, a travel company, and did a lot of uh, React development and architecture and started getting into more of the like tooling side of JavaScript, which I didn't really realize at first how much I would like. At first at Lonely Planet, I was doing a lot of things with you know front end and building these kind of cool experiences with React, server-side rendering, when that was sort of, this is around 2014-ish. And that was all kind of come out, React 14 into 15, and architecting those kinds of apps. And then I just realized how much I liked building tools that you may not see in the browser, but like giving my engineering team the ability to do their job. That's sort of when I fell into that after years of doing things like Backbone and Require and learning all that. And then I'm doing now React and doing Webpack and... I don't know. I'm kind of weird. I actually think I like writing Webpack configs. It's kind of a funny thing to say out loud, but I do. I enjoy it. So then I got an opportunity to go work at a company called Eventbrite, which is a big ticketing company. And they actually have a team dedicated to doing front-end infrastructure. What's called FE Infra. And I thought that was pretty cool. Like at Lonely Planet, I was sort of just doing it on my own because I thought it was fun. And then I actually joined a team whose like goal it was to like build developer tools. I didn't really realize that was a thing. And that was really exciting for me because I really have found as I've done this longer and longer that I actually enjoy engineers being my quote unquote like customers. I know that's always sounds weird to say that, but yeah, like 
I enjoy getting out of bed every morning to build tools to make other engineers' day-to-day -day lives better, especially in the JavaScript world. We all know JavaScript fatigue was very real for a long time, and the tools have just gotten so immensely complicated to the point where I just I can't even keep up anymore myself. I just have to sort of rely on knowing people who can tell me what is the right thing to do or just trying out different things and figuring out what works. But yeah, it's sort of where, you know, the tooling landscape has led me. So yeah, it's kind of cool to be there for two and a half years and do that. And we were basically taking code out of a big monolith that we had and JavaScript code and putting it into a monorepo, which is a really cool opportunity to kind of learn the ins and outs of working in a mon like building a monorepo from scratch and then actually going and seeing how it worked and sort of working through the cultural side of building and working inside of a monorepo. And uh, yeah, so I'm sure we'll get into that more of that in a minute. But then now I'm ultimately at Microsoft. I just started here about two months ago and I'm going to be doing similar stuff, just all this front end tooling. We're working with lots of folks inside of Microsoft Office. There's a lot of different repos all over and Microsoft sort of has a goal of improving JavaScript developers' lives. And so that's what I'm going to be doing here is doing front-end tooling and hopefully building a really nice monorepo and, and just tools in general for Microsoft Office, Microsoft, and hopefully beyond. I think our mandate is sort of to just build really good JavaScript tooling that we can use and that others can use. So I'm really excited about that. And that's sort of a little long-winded, but that's where I'm at. It's been fun. I'm excited to kind of dive in more here with you today. Hey everyone, Sanford has published an open source book called CI/CD with Docker and Kubernetes. It combines just the right amount of best practices and practical advice for shipping cloud-native apps. Download your free copy today at sanfordci.com. I mean, I can maybe start by saying thank you for, you know, doing that part of the work that the majority of us maybe don't like to do. Yeah. In recent years, I don't have a firsthand experience with JavaScript, you know, tooling, and I know it improved a lot, again, gained a lot in complexity. But I remember that, you know, something which is closer to 10 years ago, it was a struggle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. One of the things that I want to talk about, and you have been writing, there are a number of blog posts on your blog, which we are going to link in the show notes. There are like two very interesting things. One is, you know, monorepo and the journey that you mentioned. I also found it very, you know, interesting. It probably also needs a name, the term that you coined, like DevOps. <laughs> yeah, DevOps is sort of this funny thing. While I was at Eventbrite, Kyle Welch and I, my coworker, we sort of just joked around a lot because there's not really like a defined career path or any sort of name for what somebody that, like, I am a front-end developer. I write in JavaScript but I don't do as much like React or component development. So I like use front-end tools and technologies like Node and React and all this stuff, but like I don't actually build front-ends. So it's kind of like, what do we actually call ourselves? I don't know. It's a bizarre reality to live in. So I put this poll out on Twitter and I said like, should we be, you know, front-end ops or JS infrastructure or front-end infrastructure and I don't remember what we cited on there in that poll. I think I have it linked in my blog, but eventually somebody, I believe 
Ben Alegbo do retweeted somebody who said, you guys should call yourself DivOps, ha ha ha, like div, you know, like HTML tag ops. And we were all just laughing and said, that is so perfect. Like, it's just sort of like, it's kind of what we are. We're kind of like DevOps, but we're working specifically on this like front end bent. And, you know, like the name or not, you know, I've had discussions. Some people are like loving people, but it causes a discussion, which is what I love about it more than anything. It causes people to say DevOps, like they laugh and say, what is that? Explain that. And I'm like, and then they're like, oh, that's so great. So regardless of, you know, whether or not the name is the best name in the world, it has done a thing for me. And I've got a nice little Slack community of people from all over. And that was really my goal with the whole thing was to just bring people who do kind of what I do into a place where we can talk and see what's going on because we're solving all of these problems in silos all over the world at different companies. And we're solving the same problems just slightly differently. So like, can we not kind of talk more and come up with solutions together? Because I know, I know that people inside my new company, Microsoft are doing things. I mean, literally the exact same types of things that Atlassian was doing, how they solved some stuff and how we at Eventbrite were doing things and how Shopify is doing some things like, and so if you get all these people together, like maybe we can come up with some really cool solutions. So it's sort of like just a cultural networking attempt by me as that DevOps thing. And it's been really fun to have. I'm even thinking about starting like a Microsoft internal DevOps group just to kind of get even inside Microsoft. Microsoft is huge. So yeah, it's been really fun to see that take off. Yeah. It's a productive keyword, obviously, for you. I mean, if it engages people in discussion, that's great. Yeah, yeah exactly. It may not be like the hugest community on earth, but I mean, I don't know that the JavaScript tooling community is like a massive community. It's just a very niche specific thing that a lot of companies have. And it's been fun to sort of network and get more people involved in it. Yeah, that's great. Going back to the Eventbrite, the company that you worked for you know, until very recently, and the challenge that, that you saw there. Could you give us what was the you know initial spark? You mentioned it was about separating a front-end part from a monolith. Can you give us an overview of how it started? Yeah, so when I first got to Eventbrite, all of the front-end code, everything, the Python, the JavaScript, was all in one ginormous monolith, as you know a lot of companies have. And it's sort of a standard starting practice for a lot of startups. And what that led to mostly the biggest issue and most annoying problem was like, if you wanted to change a line of CSS, you had to wait for the monolith to ship, which only could happen periodically, you know, just because of how big the thing was. And the deployment processes were so complicated that, you know, it was very coupled. Like you would talk about coupling all the time in our industry. And that was like the most purest example of being tightly coupled I'd ever been a part of. So we were sort of tasked with figuring out how to get all that code out into something else. We had explored the idea of some multiple repository ideas and building like a CLI that could unify everything. And that was where we started to kind of go. And then Jamie Kyle joined our team for a little while. And he obviously was big in helping build Yarn workspaces and Lerna. And then he'd actually been working on a tool called Bolt at the time that we were able to prototype and adopt. And it was one of the funnest times I ever had developing. It was myself and Kyle and Jamie basically on Visual Studio Live Share for like eight hours a day for three weeks 
prototyping this mono repo concept that at first just sort of blew my mind. Like I hadn't really done much mono repo development. That just sort of sounded strange. But he showed us the power of like how if you have that dependency tree in your code base and your all your tools are sort of right there next to the code, how so much is just easier. <laughs> you can just run you know, a set of scripts against your whole code base in a matter of seconds and parallelize it. And it had some like built-in CI smarts to go to CI to help you get to production. So yeah, that was a really cool eye-opening experience and super fun to get to work directly with him on building that. And we built a prototype out and started sort of trying to get other teams into it. And it wasn't rainbows and unicorns, really. It was a little difficult at first because there was a lot of baggage over the monolith, obviously, you know, and so we had teams be a little frightened by the idea of monorepo, you know, does that mean it's a monolith still? Like, because we don't want that, you know, we don't like monolith. That's why I almost don't like the name monorepo. I wish it was something else like mega repo. I joked about that in a blog once because I think it frightens the people. It sounds so much like monolith, but we were able to work really hard on this idea of the dependency tree and shipping parts, only like certain parts of the monorepo, like using independent deployments. And we were able to do lots of demos. And I actually went out to Madrid and worked with some folks out there and kind of showed them what we were doing. And yeah, I think the monorepo, what I've learned is it's as much of a cultural thing as it is anything. And once we were able to show everyone a lot of the benefits of it, people were like, okay, let's go for this thing. And so then, yeah, basically, once we got a few more teams on board, we decided that was the direction we wanted to go. And we worked on it for about six months until our first like big teams started like coming in there. And I remember vividly, like we had this one team that was like, hey, we're going to move this huge flow that like is one of Vimpred's biggest teams into the monorepo. And we're like, okay, let's do this thing. And then it was like, this is real now. Like for so long, we had just been working on it. I remember that team coming in and it's like, okay, this has got to work now. I mean, it mostly did. I mean, obviously we had a few hiccups and shipping a few things, but then we were good to go. And over the next year or so working in it, we're getting branch builds done in reasonable times and releasing things constantly. I mean, people could just independently release whenever they want. We built like a cool deployment system and lots of cool stuff. And it was a really fun experience. Hey, I'm going to take a quick break here and tell you that Semaphore has a new book out called CI/CD with Docker and Kubernetes. If you are looking to deploy cloud-native apps, it's going to show you the most productive way of doing that. And the best of all, it's free. Download your free copy today at semaphoreci.com. Monorepo is not a new thing, let's say, as a term. And how it was for me, I initially heard, okay, there is a rumor or a legend that... Google keeps all their code inside the foreign repository and then it was at some point, maybe I don't know if it was two years ago or something like that, someone came out publicly about how Windows code was managed inside of, you know, Monorepo and such and such. I think that for the majority of our listeners, Monorepo is still something, you know, of a new term that, you know, some people somewhere might be using, <laughs> if they're being honest or not. I would love if you can give us a pitch maybe for people who you know, just know about term, you know, have some understanding. 
what would be your pitch of a value and return of investment and long-term, you know, benefits and so on? Sure. Yeah. So in the front end space, obviously like there's a lot of tools now that manage monorepos like Lerna and Bolt and Rush and Yarn workspaces and NPM workspaces. So like I see a lot of like open source libraries have just gone straight to that now. And at Microsoft, a lot of code is in different monorepos. Most of Office is in one repo. And it's been interesting for me to come and see like, you know, our repo at Eventbrite was pretty big. It was 500,000-ish lines of code and about 300 packages. And then I come here and I mean, there's billions of lines of code in some of these monorepos. And what they've been able to do with that is so cool is like, they've been able to work directly with Git, like the Git core team at GitHub on improvements to make that stuff scalable. And they have teams dedicated towards maintaining that tooling. And so you get this just sort of nice world where everything is there and you have a team that if you have problems, you go to them and you ask them and they can help you solve it. And as an engineer, it's just sort of transparent and and your workflows are just perfect. And I think like a monorepo is going to be the most successful when you have cultural buy-in and then a team who is dedicated to that monorepo. So like if you're at a small startup and you're saying like, should I use a monorepo right now? I still say yes, but you also have to just realize that it's not just going to be super easy at first. Like, obviously, if you just have a few NPM scripts and you're building like this JavaScript monolith or bigger app, that's going to be a little bit easier. But I think where you start to see benefits is when you start to get into separating your app out into lots of small packages, and then this tooling just makes everything easier when you can say like, you know, it's especially if you have shared components, shared utilities or like a component library. And, you know, I can go and I can change some grid component. And then with that monorepo dependency tree, you know, because everything is just right there next to your code, you're able to say definitively, if I change this grid component, here is the blast radius downstream of all the changes. And then you can run your unit tests and run your integration tests against that list of things that's powerful that's really powerful to be able to do and like can you do that in a multi-repo setup like maybe i guess but it's a whole lot more complicated when you have you know 50 different repos as opposed to 50 different packages in one repo yeah just managing access to all those yeah yeah exactly managing access and really just you know changing working directories around your computer and having multiple and this front end, I guess, on multiple like node module graphs all over the place. It's just a lot more complicated. So I'd say, yeah, yeah, having all that in one place makes things a lot easier. And I think some people's concerns with it is like, is Git going to scale to that level? And yes, it is. Trust me, it's going to be fine. Like the worst case scenario is you end up in a situation, some of the repos here use a tool that Microsoft worked on called Scalar that does some cool stuff with the Git virtual file system that they did. And you can sparse check out certain parts of the monorepo. And that's like the worst case scenario, but that's when you're getting into like billions of lines of code. So you're not going to have any problem in hundreds of thousands, probably even low millions of lines of code. We were half a million lines of code at Eventbrite and hitting, you know, sub 10 branch builds and 15, 20 minute releases. And there were other things we could have probably still done to optimize that, to be honest. So (laughs) 
the scaling concerns are not a problem, I don't think, in the monorepo. Just having that dependency tree and having all your code, just getting to see it is such a huge win. And having the tooling live like right next to the code so you can literally like, you know, test, you know, some change to your Webpack config or to your Babel config or whatever and see that propagate throughout the whole code base and how it affects it is really powerful. Or you can write like part of the whole DevOps thing that I talk about in JavaScript tooling is writing code that writes code in learning something called ASTs. If you've never heard of that, and it's basically how Babel and Jest and ESLint all work. They scan your code and create these like symbols of your code. And using that AST, you can make broad sweeping changes across your entire code base in a matter of literally seconds. We would have situations where some update would come out to a library, like even upgrading to React was one really good example of this. We were on React 15.4 for a long time, and there were some changes we need to make to the entire code base, hundreds of thousands of lines of code to upgrade to React 16. And so our team using that technology, Babel, CodeMod, and all this stuff was able to write a few transformers and basically convert thousands of lines of code in a few seconds inside the monorepo. And we could just see it all happen and then run all those tests and just make sure everything was still working. And that's something that's not very easy if you're not like in a monorepo. Like you spread that out across lots of places and then it gets even harder. And then you're dealing with teams like, hey, can you please go update this? And can you please go update that? You know, whereas we were able to just do it once for everyone and it worked out really well. Those examples from practice are very useful and probably are answering some of the questions some people might be asking themselves today. One of the things that you mentioned is you said, if you are a small startup, you said yes, but, and to be honest, it might not have followed it through. And what I see a lot of times that I'm also guilty of that in our team, and I guess some others also, you want to embrace something which is maybe not for you right now. Not for me right now might be, okay, your team is just five or 15, or, you know, depending on the company and the industry, just a certain number of people. And hey, yes, that's great, but maybe you should wait for that to, you know, double your team size or to be a mature product and so on. So when is the right time to embrace? Have you seen or heard maybe some anti-patterns in this area where people run into something which is, you know, maybe not for them at this at this stage? I would say, like, it's a lot harder to take code from all over, from multiple repositories, and put it back into one than it is to start with one and spread it out. Like, if you just are a new startup and you say, like, yeah, I know we only have 5, 10, 15 developers on this project, but if we start here and just use vanilla Lerna out of the box or vanilla Yarn workspaces out of the box and don't do anything crazy and just use, like, there's hundreds of good posts on how to do that, you're going to find it to be easier to keep that in one place and then decide later, like, actually, this one piece of this monorepo, like, actually, I think should be its own thing. That's going to be a lot easier than if you started with, like, you know, five or 10 different repos and they have to bring them all together. That's why I would say it's probably okay even from the get-go because I think the main other thing with a monorepo to me has been sort of like with unit testing. It's a similar concept. If you start thinking as a monorepo and you start dividing up your packages into the monorepo, then you sort of start building and thinking about 
you know, your units of code, your packages in a similar way you would think about, you know, writing a unit test and trying to test small things. In that monorepo setup, if you've got it rocking and rolling and you're like, well, I don't want to have this like huge package. I'm going to split that up into multiple things. Like that's probably a good thing. You know, you don't want to have too many like large, you know, swaths of code and big packages. It forces you into this mindset where you're already like thinking in smaller units of code and these small packages. So that's why I say like, even if you're a new startup, like it might be a good approach. Keep your business logic in one package and your component library in another package. And maybe you could break down your component library into a few small things. And that tooling is not tremendously difficult to maintain. You just learn a run lint and learn a run build or whatever. Like that stuff's pretty simple. And again, it's that culture thing. And that's why I would just recommend it. I think it's a really good practice. <laughs> okay. Okay. So no dangers that you see that are waiting. No, no. Okay. And I spent most of my career in the backend parts of the development stack. And for us, Internally, it was a big discussion, something that we embraced as that's a microservices approach. I don't know how it maps to front-end part, but those components and, you know, separating things up and it's being independent and so on, you know, there is a lot of similarities and probably the same problems are being solved. And one of the guests that we have in this podcast was Dave Farley, the author of Continuous Delivery Book a guy who you know has decades of experience of helping people deliver software efficiently he was saying okay guys so if uh, you know any of you are going into you know slicing up your monolith into microservices and you are going to you know ship everything together you know don't do it you're getting absolutely nothing and that's something that you refer to also as you know can i ship independently which is a huge thing so if you can share maybe some of the things of, you know, how when everything is done together and it's behind a single SHA, single revision, it seems that there is some tooling that needs to be present there to decide what's the artifact which is being shipped and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple of things I want to say there. You mentioned microservices. And I think the common thing now that a lot of people are moving towards, it's sort of kind of, I think, just been renamed into this, but it's this idea of micro frontends. I think it became popular more recently because of some blogs that came out about it. But, you know, it's this idea of, you know, having these small, independently deployable apps, just like microservices. If you are going to move into the micro frontend space, like, again, having those micro frontends in a mono repo is really nice because it's like, if you've got your dashboard app, or whatever, and you've got your homepage app and all these different things inside that monorepo, if some package that touches both the dashboard and the homepage change, like you can see that effect happen and run those tests and verify that your dashboard and your homepage are still good to go. And then in terms of like, how do you go about like shipping those things? Once you've got that like nice dependency tree and you've got continuous integration and to the point where you know, I know these few packages changed, which means my dashboard app needs to now ship. You can take that one dashboard app and create your bundles or a Docker image or whatever it is that you need to create of just that dashboard and ship just that piece to production. And you can do that separately from the homepage app that was also built. So it comes down to like having that tooling team understand that dependency model and 
being able to then extrapolate that into what needs to go out to your staging server first and then into production. And it's even more powerful than that because if you have a team who's got, you know, in the microphone in space, you might have like some team over here that works on some small piece of a microphone because a microphone could even be just a, like a component on a page. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be like the entire page. If that little component on your dashboard is a micro front end, you know, the same principle applies. That team changes that micro front end, then all the tests run and you could have some cool integration tests where, you know, this micro front end runs inside of this other micro front end. And because of that tooling that you have built with your mono repo, you can effectively determine like that, again, that blast radius, like this change. So now I need to verify that it all works over here. And that's just a really powerful thing to be able to do. It's a lot harder to do in the non-microfront and monorepo world. So it's pretty cool. Us being in the CI world, a lot of people want to have their CI builds you know, as fast as possible. Also, as a side effect of that, not having to test and build everything else just because you changed as you initially referred to one single CSS, <laughs> CSS change and rebuild everything that saves time and, yeah increase productivity then. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. You don't want to have to rebuild an entire Webpack dependency tree just because like one package change. You want to rely on things like caching and even maybe in the future as we figured out this whole Webpack federation thing where you're able to remotely pull bundles. You know, you want to just build that small piece, you know, not the entire thing. That's all just not impossible in a multi-repo setup, but it's just easier in a monorepo. And so I like taking the easy path here. I was looking through a blog and discovered some of these tools for the first time that actually seem to be quite mature. It's just not my area. So like Bolt that you were mentioning, you mentioned Lerna and Rush is also referenced in your blog. At this point in time, is there a thing that you are really looking forward to being solved? On one hand, JavaScript world for front ends and this tooling. Is there something which you feel that is still, you know, itchy and needs to be solved? I've seen lots of Lerno repos and I've seen lots of Yarn workspace repos now and working in one. And I'm I'm curious to see how well this works once we are dealing with like a thousand packages versus, you know, we have 500 right now. Like, is it going to continue to not like go exponential at its scale? Is it going to stay like kind of this linear thing? I think the answer is yes. And I hope it is. I'm very curious to see how NPM workspaces end up working. I know that's a little bit up and coming. V7 released, NPM released their own workspaces model. And we're actually working directly with that team on some stuff, which is pretty cool to be able to just like work directly with NPM and help them get it right. So I'm pretty excited for that. I think the Federation stuff that I mentioned before, we had a really good chat with the guy who was working on that, Zach, the last week in a clubhouse. I do a clubhouse called Front End Architecture at Scale every Friday. And we chatted about that a while ago. And I think that Federation idea is they're trying to sort of even maybe standardize on what that might look like across bundlers. Like maybe if Parcel could have some standard for it or if Webpack could have some standard for it. The idea is like you could build your packages and put them somewhere and then different Webpack runs could remotely pull your bundles in. So that way, like talk about not building things you don't need to build. Like you could just literally fetch bundles from somewhere else and pull them down at runtime 
And that I think is an area that is evolving, but I think is going to be really, really powerful for front ends in the future, especially as this micro front end architecture is taking off even more, I think, than it really ever has. So I'm really excited in particular for that change as well. The only other thing I can think of that people have been talking a little bit about in terms of, you know, tooling and JavaScript is like, are we going to hit a bottleneck with JavaScript itself? Whereas like JavaScript is just not fast enough to do these certain things because, you know, it has to run a node and it's got to do its JavaScript node stuff. And so people have asked me like, hey, what do you think about like Rush and Go to like build JavaScript toolings? And I'm like, well, it's kind of cool. I mean, Rush is super fast and I think there's probably some cool things we may be seeing in the future with JavaScript tooling where, you know, there's just some sort of bottleneck that you can't get over and you write, you know, a Rush tool to do it because Rush is blazingly fast. I mean, like I know they say it, but I mean, it really is. It's impressive. So I think that's kind of a cool future area that front-end tooling and monorepo tooling might get to. You know, if you're dealing with tens of thousands of packages, like maybe Rush deals with some of the like symlinking and some of those more complicated file system operations that take a lot of IO and time to do. Like maybe Rush can do that in a fraction of the time JavaScript can. That's another area that I'm excited to sort of see where we go as a community. Things like ES Build are proving that out now. And SWC, those are two new bundlers. I think they're both built in Rust. I know SWC is. But yeah, that's kind of going to be interesting as well, I think. So there's a couple of different areas there. Great, great. So thank you for sharing all this. I think especially for people who maybe have not ventured in these waters, this would be probably a word of encouragement <laughs> to at least try it out in some limited scope and you know see what it brings. Okay, thank you again so much. Good luck with new adventures as part of Microsoft. Thank you. I see there will be a lot of new experiences in terms of scale and how that will play out. Yes, yes. It's going to be a fun journey. Got a team. I'm the first member of that team, so it's been kind of cool to get in and help create it and see where we can take it. And yeah, thank you very much for the time. This is super fun and love to continue chatting. Great. Thanks. Good luck. Bye. Thanks. Bye.